You're now listening to episode 118 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here today with Bill Allen, CEO of Seven Figure Flipping. Bill and his team currently flip and wholesale over 200 deals per year in Tennessee and Northern Florida. Through his company, Seven Figure Flipping, he also helps lead top house flipping and wholesaling mentoring groups in the nation. In today's episode, we discuss how wholesaling and flipping are actually two separate businesses and why being successful in one does not necessarily mean you'll be successful in the other. We also discuss how investors should be investing in this current market cycle and more. If you're ready to take your flipping or wholesaling business to the next level, you'll want to check out Flip Hacking Live, an event coming up on October 15th through 17th. This is the only event where you'll learn how to hack the nation's top house flippers and wholesalers and learn their exact strategies and systems to grow your business to 10, 20, or even 30 deals per month. Grab your tickets for only $3.97 by visiting www.fliphackinglive.com and using promo code HALL. Again, that's www.fliphackinglive.com and use promo code HALL to grab your tickets for only $3.97. The link will be in the show notes below, but for right now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Bill, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was a military pilot. So I was an active duty Navy pilot for, I did almost 15 years of active duty. While I was doing that, I was moving around a ton. I moved 15 times in the last 18 years. After 2006, I started kind of buying a house when I would move from town to town and I uh, would fix it up a little bit and then rent it out and then move. And so I did that a couple of times. I saw my net worth was starting to grow. I was enjoying some uh, semi-passive income. I used passive loosely with a rental house. If I was a little bit active. So I wanted to do more of that. I ended up flipping my first house after that. It was actually a rental house that I bought. And my realtor said, you know, if you flip this, you can make some good money. So she wanted a second commission. And I said, okay, I made $43,000 on that house. It was like half my income for the year. So I wanted to do that again and again and again. So I went from uh, this next two years, I flipped one house a year. And then I got around some people that were kind of scaling their business and um, just trying to figure out how they were doing it. And I was still working my full-time job flying for the Navy down in Pensacola. And I was able to kind of grow that business from one house a year to a couple hundred houses a year. We do almost 200 houses a year now in my company. And uh, that's been that way for about the past four years. When you started the, the flipping business, how are you finding deals? And then I would also like to fast forward into the future or to today and ask you now, how do you find deals? Well, when I got started, I didn't really know what I was doing um, off-market stuff. So I was looking with a realtor. My first house I bought was a short sale that a realtor found for me. And that was a house I turned into a rental. Before that, actually, my rentals were just on the MLS. I just bought a couple of uh, properties just like a retail buyer would do. I didn't even know that I could buy at a discount. But the numbers worked. So I was renting them out. That was 2009, 2009 and 10. So to give you some context. And then... Uh, 2000, let's see, 2012, I bought a foreclosure off of 
I want to say it was PubZoo at the time. Maybe it still is. Maybe it was Exome, one of the two. Uh, but I just bought a foreclosure off an auction site that I could go see. I just went into it and ran the numbers and bought that out. That was going to be a rental. And then after that, the first off-market property I bought was in 2014. And that was a, um, an estate sale where I had read on kind of some of the forums and in books and podcasts that people were bought houses at estate sales. And I was getting really frustrated because I was sending some cards at the time, like some letters and not getting a lot of traction. So I, uh, I bought a house from an estate sale. I just rolled up and asked them if they were interested in selling the house. They said, yeah. A couple of days later, I bought it. And now, the answer to answer your question now, I did the math the other day. I was doing a presentation for someone. Uh, I think we bought like eight houses off the MLS in the past couple of years. Everything's pretty much direct to seller marketing. Uh, we're about 50% online. So Facebook, uh, Google Ads, things like that. And then about 50% kind of direct mail or some ecosystem of direct mail. We might be doing a targeted list or maybe we're doing text follow-ups with uh, ringless voicemail stuff in combination with direct mail. But that's been... Direct mail was my bread and butter when I went from one house a year to 67 that first year. It was 100% direct mail. And that was in uh, 2015. Awesome. Awesome. So when you finally get the property in front of you, how do you determine what's your criteria for determining whether or not it's a good property that you either maybe want to wholesale or you want to fix and flip? Like what's your investment criteria, I guess? Well, let me give let me give some background on what the company does. We're about like eighty to ninety percent wholesale now, and we only we only flip a couple houses now. We actually moved off of the flipping model probably about a year ago, and we pretty much only like clean it up and put it on the market. And that's primarily because we're all virtual, so we're kind of all over the southeast of the United States right now, and we don't necessarily have that boots on the ground person that would be a great project manager or construction manager. And everybody that's listening to this probably has trouble with contractors, so do we. So without that like rock solid person, we just said, look, we're really good at wholesaling. We can move properties through really fast and uh, do volume that way. So that's what the business looks like today. Um, as far as like criteria goes, the cool thing about being a wholesaler is you don't have to be dead on with your exact numbers. And I'll explain why a little bit. Everybody has a little bit different business model. If you understand who your customer is, so that demand portion of the supply and demand model that you have, that demand will control your inventory and what you can move and what you can't move. So for example, I live in Nashville. And so there could be a house here in Nashville that nobody else could pay what we can pay because we see it differently than other people do. Other people are trying to work the numbers as a fix and flip, but we're going to work it as a development project where someone's actually going to tear the house down. It's going to split the lot into two and build two skinny like row houses next to each other. And so we can actually pay a lot more money than somebody who's just trying to fix up a 1,200 square foot house that doesn't understand what the land value is in Nashville. Uh, from the other angle, you can look at it as an Airbnb and an Airbnb buyer can pay more than just a typical landlord. So here in Nashville, it's really popular. If we can get some the zoning right, if we can get it grandfathered in as an Airbnb or it already is, then we can make more money off of it. So I think to answer that question, you have to understand who your customer is as a wholesaler. And if you can do that, then I feel like we can move just about anything as long as we can work our numbers right from... I mean, we have to get it at a deeper discount than the developer would. The Airbnb buyer, the landlord, the flipper, all those people, we have to negotiate a better deal. Um, but we kind of run it like that. And then a lot of times we use those buyers to give us our feedback and say, hey, the repairs are a little bit higher than you guys thought. And um, we don't necessarily intentionally put a house under contract more expensive than we would. I see a lot of people do that. They just say yes. They go back and renegotiate. But there are times where we have to go back and to the seller and say, hey, we didn't even get access to this house. We didn't see the pictures. The repair costs are higher than you said that we both agreed on. We're going to have to uh, have a, a price reduction or it's just not going to work for us. So that's the wholesale side. I'd say 
about 80 to 85% of what we put under contract moves out the door for that. And then as a flipper, uh, one thing I learned uh, the hard way was not to flip expensive houses. So for me, I want to be in that first and second time home buyer, like that median home price house. And that's my criteria. And down in Pensacola, I still fund somebody else. Uh, me and a partner work on deals and I, I use my money. He does the work. We pretty much stick to the three bedroom, two bath, brick ranch type house in the median home price. $150,000 to $200,000. I really won't go over two hundred and fifty grand. I got burned on expensive houses. So I hope that answered your question. So it sounds like the expensive houses, your experience there kind of pushed you away from the flipping and more or less just into the wholesaling side of things. Well, you know, it wasn't necessarily the expensive houses. I will touch on that real quick because I think it might help some people. There's a lot less eyes on your expensive house. And in certain areas, obviously, if you're in San Francisco, every house is expensive, right? Or if you're in San Diego. But for us in Pensacola, a $700,000 house, there might only be a couple people looking for it. And the times on market are longer, the price drops are bigger, the finishes need to be better, all that stuff. It's just, you've really gotten to a small, small buying pool. It's all supply and demand, right? The demand is really low. And they can be really picky. Those people can be picky about what they get and what they buy. What pushed me out was more of the fact that I think they're totally separate businesses. So you have a lot of wholesalers that try to flip and wholesale. And then you have uh, some that, you know, some flippers that are like, I'm also going to try to wholesale. I really think it's two totally separate businesses. And I had to kind of learn the hard way where my flipping business was kind of like robbing money from my wholesaling business. And I've seen people go the other way too, where they're great flippers. And they're like, ah, oh, man, I'm leaving all these leads on the table. We should just try to wholesale also. And they split their focus. So what I like to do now is I've learned the hard way to really focus on something get it set up, get it systemized, get it automated, like get it to run without me. Then I can go do something else. Um, I was kind of a deal junkie for a long time and I just try to do everything. So the flippers that are really good at flipping, that's like raising money, project management, budget, like scopes of work, networking for deals, finding contractors, dealing with the retail buyers, the agents, that world. They got to be really good at that stuff. And then wholesalers need to be really good at marketing, selling, and like transaction management, moving the property in and out, and dealing with the title companies, buyers, and sellers, and communication. So I think it's two totally different skill sets. And if you try to get your company to do both, you're inevitably going to rob from one side to pay for the other. And I think it happens in all business and anything that we do. Could even be like a CPA business. You're trying to do lots of different things, right? And next thing you know, this area is losing money, this area is making money, and you're just kind of breaking even or just a little bit above in your net profit. So that's why ultimately we, we said, okay, we're really good at wholesaling. We got the systems, we got the processes, we got the right people. Let's just stick to that. And then, you know, if, like right now, I really want to flip houses because the market is so hot right now. Um, and if we had inventory, we'd be making more money, but we just got to stick to our bread and butter. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, those are some wise words right there. I guess, you know, kind of zeroing in on COVID, you know, the world has changed a little bit. Has that changed, you know, the wholesaling environment for you at all? And if so, how has it and what have you done to adapt to it? So let's see, we're recording this in the beginning of the middle of August or September, middle of September. I'm an entrepreneur. I never really know what day of the week it is or what month it is, but we're in September. I would say if you asked me that question in March, then we would be in a totally different place. We'd have been like a little bit concerned. There was like this pause button that hit all the hard money lenders kind of went crazy and kind of left the market, right? For a couple of weeks. Then they came back and said, hey, we might have been a little bit too early to jump to conclusions and things. So what happened for us was we saw a lot of people, we saw like 10 or 20% of our buyers say, hey, I'm actually buying more than I ever was. And then we had about 50% of our buyers that said, I'm going to buy, but I'm going to buy it a little bit more of a discount, like 10 or 15% off. And then we had like the rest, which was, I guess, like 30% of those folks that were like, I'm not buying at all. I'm going to wait till 
I don't know, after the election, we'll figure it out. And I've seen that before. I saw that four years ago too in the election time. But what happened was that gap of them not buying, some of the people not buying, has moved to now where they're like hungrier than ever to buy properties. So like today, in today's market, our demand is higher than it was like six months ago, if you can even believe that, because it was really high then. But the fact that there's nothing on the market, so if you imagine, for every house that gets sold right now, only about half of a house replaces it, in most of our markets at least. So if you look at just that number, and there's already a housing shortage right now, right? There's an affordable housing shortage, uh, like a median home price house, and people are still buying houses and moving. And so what we're seeing with, with one house coming off the market and half replacing it, and nobody else really wants to list their properties. Like you can see the realtors are dropping like half of the homes that are typically listed around the summertime weren't listed. So when we have a vacant house that's fixed up and it's nice, it's like the only inventory in town. And so they're getting bid up. We're actually having problems with appraisals on the houses that we're flipping down in Florida with my partner. And so like with all this stuff, demand's really high from the wholesaling side. Now on the operational side as a wholesaler, yeah, things have changed a lot. Like people just don't want us in their house. You know, it's different. And also people are a little bit more finicky about moving and they're going to wait now to sell their house a little bit, especially owner occupants. Um, the landlords might not be able to evict their folks that are uh, causing problems. So all of this stuff is adding up to a little bit more dynamic when you deal with the supply, like the sellers. And the demand is, has gone back up. It's really high right now for us. So what we did was we were fortunate enough in January to go to a buying over the phone model. So we, were, we weren't actually going to houses since January, not anything because of the coronavirus. And I'm not a genius. I didn't like see it coming or anything. We just thought that we wanted to stop wasting so much time driving to and from properties. So we're going to try out the buying over the phone model. And that's helped us a lot. We don't actually go into the houses anymore. And so more of the virtual type purchases. And we have a process set up where somebody goes and takes pictures of the house and everything after we get the house under contract. And that gives us the feedback that we need of is the property in good shape. And then our buyers can go in and give us even better feedback about what they think. And it's been really great for us. So I think you know COVID brings an interesting uh, standpoint to all this, but there's goods and bads in anything that happens. And I think you just have to assess that. In, in April, I, I lost as a business owner $70,000 because I didn't fire anybody. I kept everybody on payroll and I kept marketing. We spent about forty to 45000 a month in marketing because I, I had this idea that this was going to happen. And I didn't want to be the wholesaler that didn't have any inventory when people realize that it was just a pause button. And when it unpresses, then they're going to want houses. And so we have them and we've made money now after that. Have you seen some of the competition leave the market? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my world of like inside the mastermind group that I run and stuff, I really was telling them like, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And it's interesting because you, have, you kind of have three different people. You have the early person who's just getting started right now, right? And then you've got that person in the middle who's like scaling their business and growing and dumping all their money back into their business as they grow, which was me like five years ago. And so those are the people that really have had trouble through that. because they. And then you have the people that have thriving business that have equity built up in their business that can afford to lose $70,000 and not be freaking out yet. Like I won't say that I wasn't freaking out, but I was saying, look, let's create a tripwire like three months from now and say, okay, now maybe we need to start laying off some folks or we need to start thinking about our payroll side and our marketing side and things like that, and maybe just change the business model a little bit. So the people in the middle are like that crunch is the people who got got hit pretty hard. They didn't have a bunch of equity in their company. They were probably leveraged. They probably had a bunch of houses that they were fixing up. They didn't have a lot of like, you know, cash flow or a lot of cash reserves. And you can't go into debt month over month over month and run your marketing when you don't know if it's going to come back or you've been pumping all your money in. So I think those people in the middle 
the, the early folks, the people who are just getting started, I don't think there could be a better time to do that than right now. And then the people who had a thriving business. I saw some thriving businesses just say, I've been here before. I went through 2008. I don't want to feel like this again. And they just started firing their staff and laying people off and shutting it down. And I think there's, they're going... Now they're saying, uh-oh, like I got to ramp it up. And as a marketing company, you don't see the revenue from your marketing for two or three months a lot of times. So when that pause button that hit in March and April is affecting them now. And now they're like, oh, this hurts. Uh, I wish I had kind of marketed through it. So, so you do a lot of wholesaling. You, you've done fix and flip. Do you have a buy and hold portfolio? Do you hold any of the properties that you come across? Why or why not? So I, had, um, I, I was buying these single family houses, like these class A nice houses in the beginning. So I got to 10 and they were each making about $10,000 a year. And that's, that was my goal initially, was all I wanted to do. Um, over the last two years, I sold them all. So I sold all those single family houses. And the reason was, is I was buying them differently five, six years ago than I'm buying them now. So anytime one of these single family houses became vacant, I said, and so they were starting to get to the point where they were going to need some new roofs and new air conditioners and uh, some of the bigger ticket items. And the retail market was pretty hot. So I said, look, I can sell it. Like if it comes vacant and I would ask myself, if this came across my desk today as a deal for what I bought it for, when I bought it, would I buy it? Does that make sense? If the answer was no, like if I wouldn't buy it at the same price that I bought it in 2013, 2014, 2015, then I sold it. And I pulled that equity out and I went and did something else with it. And I'll tell you what I did with it in a second because I think it's, it's valid to this question. So, so all those 10, not a single one of them did I say, yes, I would keep them. I was also self-managing them pretty much. So I was having to deal with some of the, some of the things that came up. And I was only making about 8 to 10% on each of these uh, per year. Like uh, for the amount of money that I had in there, I was making about 8, 8 to 10%. And that just wasn't enough for me. I was making more money elsewhere and in my business and other things that I was doing. So I was getting some depreciation. I was getting some nice benefits, but just wasn't the model that I wanted to go forward with. I do think it's a great model. Like I don't have anything against single family uh, residences as rentals. I think people should, if that's what they want to do. But I move around so much. I move really fast. It just was the, I don't know, it's too slow for me. I'm also impatient. So I took all that cash. And then what I did was I started investing in other people's syndications. I was making a ton of active income. So I wanted to offset my active income with depreciation. And so I was looking for big depreciation, like when bonus depreciation happened and we could start doing that, even on on single family houses, um, I really liked the bonus depreciation that I could get off of larger apartment buildings and things like that. So I actually look for buildings that don't kick off a lot of cash flow in the beginning, but have bigger upside down the road in five or 10 years when we exit. And I'm getting huge depreciation in year one. So what I did was I took all that money and I I call it, I, I think about it as like burying it in the backyard. I put like $50,000 in a deal or $100,000 in a deal. And it doesn't spit off a lot of cash flow right now, but I get a lot of depreciation on my tax return via the K-1s and hopefully offset my active income down to zero as a real estate professional. So that's what I did with it. I have like probably as a limited partner, general partner, almost 3,000 units. We have like 2,000 storage units and 1,000 multifamily buildings over the past couple of years, uh, like doors, not, not actually 1,000 apartment buildings. But that's allowed me to basically write off all of my income the past two years. I paid $150,000 tax bill three years ago and it didn't feel good. So I don't want to do that again. Yeah, you got to love the real estate professional status and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that has 100% bonus depreciation. And just for everybody who's listening here, just want to confirm this is you do real estate full time for a living, right? I do, yeah. So I left the Navy after uh, almost 15 years of active duty. I still fly for the reserves, but yeah, I, I mean, I. I work full-time in, in the real estate business. So I have a fix and flip company, uh, Blackjack Real Estate. And then I have a, a mastermind group that I bought last year 
from the guy who's, uh, who was running it when I joined it. And, uh, so I spend like 60 hours a week in that business probably right now trying to build it out, hire the right people, automate it. So I don't spend as much time over there. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. So just a few questions on the flipping business that you have or that you've, you've winded down a bit. What are some of the challenges you face in that business in terms of keeping the timelines going, keeping the contractors on budget and making sure that you know the deal is getting done and people aren't running away with your money and they're not you know driving huge expenses that blow out your entire budget for the property? So we wanted to flip 50 houses a year. That was our goal about two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now. And so we had the money, we had the deal flow, we had the conveyor belt of deals coming through from our wholesaling business. And so what we did was we... I said, okay, I got two options. I can hire a project manager. And keep in mind, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And the houses that we were flipping were in Pensacola, Florida. So it's about six and a half hour drive away. And we have a team in Pensacola. So my phone people, so my acquisitions reps, we still do a lot of business down there. But I wasn't there and my COO wasn't there. And we're both in Nashville. And then some other folks in our company are in Nashville too. So what happened was I said I could hire a project manager, which I did. I hired a project manager here in Nashville. I sent them down to Pensacola to live there. And then I also partnered with a guy who I still partner with today. I mean, he's a great flipper, but he's really good at flipping like two or three houses at a time. And I thought I could get him to 10 or 15 houses at a time, like me, like we could just do high volume. And so that combination down there was the reason it didn't go very well. So some of the problems that we had was we weren't holding them accountable. Like we weren't going down and checking on it and things like that. So the timelines would get a little bit longer. Right, so it's very easy when you're flipping a house to listen to contractors say they they don't have time for it, or the electrician needs two more weeks, or the plumbing's not done, so you can't do this, or the tile guy can't go in because the tub's not set yet, and then the tub guy's not going to be there for a week, so you just sit and do nothing. That was happening, and we weren't really noticing because what was happening is the deals were getting sold, like we were still making money, but a lot of the inventory was sitting, so there were some houses that were like sitting there for long periods of time, just waiting to get started. But the other ones that were making bigger profit were hitting. So it almost was like like hidden inside of all of this happening because we were not holding them accountable. We were focused on like systemizing and automating the, the wholesaling business. So what I'll tell anybody is nobody thinks about your business or your money or any of that stuff like you do. So if you even if it's somebody else that you're partnering with or some like a project manager or something like that, like there's a saying, inspect what you expect, right? So really you've got to kind of check on it. And we just let it go too long. So a lot of this stuff can happen. One thing is contractors are like, they'll be good until they're not. And so you'll have this rock star contractor, even a general contractor who's killing it for you. And then something will happen. And I don't know what goes on in their lives, but they start not showing up the way they should. Their stuff's not getting done. They're starting to get distracted. All of this stuff happens. And next thing you know, they're no good anymore at all. And you are now six months into what's supposed to be a three-month project. And you're the one who's losing money, not them. And they don't care. So I'd say always be looking for a backup to anything that you have. Like I always tell people, fill your Rolodex with contractors, with subcontractors with everybody. Like really, you want to be five or six people deep, even if you have that one person that's just the total rock star. So we used every house um, as a kind of a tryout, let people bid it, bring three people in, four people in every time, even though you know the person who's probably going to do the job and start interviewing people, get to know people, and then eventually give them a job, see how they do and really have a couple different crews. And also the contractor that does one or two jobs for you might not be able to do 10 jobs at a time for you, even though they say they can. So there's just people that one or two is really all they can do, or maybe three, but they're maxed out. So like my partner right now, the guy who we brought in, 
I tell them, look, I'll do two or three houses with you at a time. That's it. Like if you're doing more than that, I'm not interested because he's really, really good at doing two or three houses at a time. He's not good at doing 10 at a time. And I thought he could scale like I could, and he just couldn't get there. Uh, we just could not figure that out. So hopefully there's a couple tips in there. I'd say managing contractors, timelines, really watching the budget and really like checking on it. Don't take other people's word for it. Like drive over there and look, like get your eyes on it. Or if you have somebody that you really, really trust, fine, but you got to have a higher level person that has the capability to do that thing to go check on it because we were just getting fed a load of BS and we would drive down there and we just waited too long. Drive down there is like, this isn't what I thought. I mean, I remember going down there and I looked at four different houses and they were way off from what we were being told and what I thought, where I thought we were at. That's all really good stuff. I and mean, we, we've had that experience too with contractors that we've used in the past. And I think what I've realized is you, you can run your business to handle the 10 houses, right? But your contractor is running a different business that might not necessarily be able to keep up with 10 houses. And then you have to make a decision. Do I go and find a new contractor that can take the remaining seven or find two new contractors? They're all doing three or four. Or do I try to help this contractor build their business out? And I've just found that if they're not going to take the steps to proactively learn how to build their business out themselves, like joining a mastermind group, then it's going to be relatively difficult for you to get them to scale that 10 number mark. Uh, at least that's my personal experience. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, you're so reliant on other people's businesses all the time. And I, was, I constantly would say, like, why can't they do what we can do? What's the problem here? This guy does so great with two houses. Why can't they do five? And they're constantly telling me, I can do five. I can absolutely do it. So just give them like one more at a time. Don't give them five all at once. We basically just went like, okay, hey, if you can do two or three, Here's 15, get them all done. You say you can do it. And then all 15 were screwed up instead of two or three going well. We could have made more money if we just did two or three at a time. Yeah, definitely. So touching base again on on COVID, how are you seeing the market today? What sort of indicators are you seeing? And how do you think the next year or so is going to play out? Uh, Okay, so let me... That's an unfair question. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I'll I'll talk about it. I'll put it right out there. Let's record it. I usually don't, but let's do it. So we've got... um, you know, today it's interesting because I feel like the economy is propped up on. I, I used this term the other day, the propped up on a feather. Like there's really nothing that's supporting where we are right now. It's pretty crazy. Like we're bailing ourselves out with our own money, and nobody can get on the same page in uh, Congress and the House and everything like that right now for like a second stimulus plan. It's, it's crazy, and so I don't know how much longer we can continue to do that. Now I do think that there's still a major housing shortage in the United States. And so with that comes an interesting kind of like yin and yang, right? It's like, we have this housing shortage. So it's crazy to think that the house prices can actually go down. But this is the exact same thing that people were saying in like 2006 and 2007. It's like, it can't go down. Like it's, it's not possible. So we've got people that are behind on their mortgage that if Congress doesn't get their stuff together or the Republicans and the Democrats don't get their stuff together, we don't know what's going to happen. Eventually, banks are going to have to make money. And they're going to make people pay their mortgage, right? And this this is going to bring a lot of distressed sales and some foreclosures and short sales and things like that. So I would say that it's not led by a banking crisis right now. It's led by a pandemic that we had no idea what it looks like. And it's definitely brand new um, to all of us. So right now, I feel like the market is very, very hot for like fix and flip houses, vacant, fixed up, nice homes. We're still like, we can't even get our houses to appraise at the number that people are willing to throw at us and pay for houses. Mortgage rates are really, really low. So that helps too. Like the interest rates are so low that 
People just want to refinance, upgrade their house. They are also realizing that they don't have an office in their house. They might be working from home for a long period of time. So nobody really likes the house that they live in right now, it seems. So there's a lot of indicators that say, at least in the short term, I think if it cools off a little bit, it probably will cool off some. But until we see some major like distress sales flooding the market with foreclosures and things like that, I really don't see the market coming down a ton. I do think it probably will flatten out or cool off a little bit. But that's probably the next like six months at least. I, my recommendation to anybody is you want to get in and out of your properties as fast as possible. Um, if you're sitting on stuff, if you're like, I don't know, building you know, new construction development that you're starting, it's going to take three or four years. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. But we're trying to get in and out of the houses really fast. Like wholesale houses, uh, some of our members are flipping houses in like seven days, 10 days, stuff like that. Like really putting $30,000 renovation in seven days. And you can't really get bit that hard with that. And then build in a little bit of cushion. So if you look at 2008, housing prices dropped like 1% or 1.5% per month. So when you look at that, it has not, it's nothing like 32% in a stock market in like a week or two weeks, you know, or an 18% drop in one day. So you're not looking at that. You just have to be realistic about what's happening. Like, Don't be so high on the hog saying housing prices are never going to fall because they are. There's no doubt. And we are in a recession and we're going to continue in a recession. And so I don't know. I'd say my crystal ball says... There's probably a couple things that are going to happen. There's going to be some sort of eviction issue. So that's one thing that I'm looking at is watching the evictions. And if landlords can't evict, but they want to sell and lock in their equity right now, it could be a great opportunity for off-market properties from landlords that just don't want to evict. And then people like us or flippers or other landlords that are willing to buy at a discount because that other person wants to walk with their cash right now, that you could hold somebody in there for six months and not have them not pay rent but you have this bump in equity that you're buying equity. That's all we do is buy equity. So what are the different ways that we can do that? It's probably evictions, some foreclosures and short sales and networking. So right now we're trying to build some relationships with banks, try to learn some more of the short sale game because it might come back again. And then look at some of the market indicators like uh, evictions and, and other things that cause people to stress and want to sell. But I think we'll be able to, to find deals a little bit easier going forward. But I still think there's money to be made in any market. So I don't really love the people that are like sitting on the sidelines waiting because there's still a guy that called me four years ago from the last election and he's still not buying from me. So I don't know what he's doing, but I recommend you invest through whatever it is and just find the way to make money. I think one, one thing that's made me still feel confident about investing in real estate in the pandemic is all the money printing by the Fed, the monetary easing theoretically should increase inflation over the coming years. And real estate is, a, is an amazing hedge against inflation, especially if you own fixed debt. And so I, I am, Bill, one of those guys that you don't love sitting on the sideline right now, <laughs> but, but not because I don't want to participate. I just can't freaking find anything, man. I was sitting here going, oh, pandemic, like not to make it, I, I don't want to make light of it at all. But I also was like, finally, I'm going to find some deals because I haven't found anything over the past like two years. Still nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, I don't do the uh, the off market, so I can't. I don't. I don't have time to do that. But uh, it's tough. It's tough out there for like a retail buyer that's just trying to find a decent, a decent deal to park cash. Well, let me let me give you some advice, and maybe it'll help you and anybody who's listening who just doesn't want to work with wholesalers or thinks that they're like way overpriced. Is they are out there working really hard to find deals, and I would get on every single wholesaler's list. I would also work with them, like spend a little bit of time with them, talk to them, like give them some feedback and stuff like that. And one thing that nobody does, and this is a huge tip, anytime I speak at a RIA group or I talk to flippers, it's like, 
Everybody gets so upset when a wholesaler sends out a deal where you're like, I can't pay that. That's crazy. Like nobody's buying at that price, right? And if you're going to look at it, you're going to analyze it, you're going to run your numbers, then send us an offer. It can be $50,000 less than our asking price. I don't care. But you might be the only person that sends in an offer. And that means a lot to that wholesaler, especially if they're newer or like, if we don't have a number, but let's use an example that I talked about earlier. We have like, you know, 20 or 25% of these deals that fall out. And so, and a lot of times it's title issues, but sometimes it is price. And somebody sends us an offer, like a flipper sends us a number. Then when we go back to that seller, we have, we know we can get it done at this price. So we can at least go back and say, I have something tangible. Imagine a wholesaler, just put yourself in the wholesaler shoes, who has to go back to a seller and has to renegotiate a price and has no idea if they can get it done. Right. And then so now it's a totally different conversation. If if we we're asking 220 and somebody gave me 180, like well, I could go in there at 178 potentially and just try to get there. And if we can't get there, then we cancel it. But if we do, I just made two thousand dollars. And you can get a deal at 108, 180,000 when we were asking 220. Hmm. And nobody else, everybody else just unsubscribed from our email list, deleted the email, got pissed off, complained. I'm sure like I see you smiling, Brandon. You're probably like, I've done that. Like I've 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 bad mouthed a wholesaler. I said it's it's a waste. Like, go get like. I know a guy who's doing eighty deals a year in San Diego, spending no money on marketing. He buys from wholesalers, realtors, and is now in San Diego, in San Diego, California. Does eighty flips a year, and it's all networking. It's all building relationships. It's all he gets on every single wholesaler's list. He has drip campaigns. He sends them like cookies and flowers and all kinds of stuff. Like he is front of the mind for those people. Tell people all the time is like, especially a newer wholesaler. You might be able to get three or four deals, just you out of a new wholesaler who sends it to nobody else. And they send you the lead when they're working on the lead because they don't know how to run the numbers like you do. So what is your value and how can you help the marketplace? Because a new wholesaler might not know that they should build a buyer's list that's really, really juicy to make as much money as possible and don't give it to that one person who's helping them or is willing to go on the appointment with them and run the numbers and tell them what they should pay. And so you can get three or four deals out of that new wholesaler. So um, a lot of people are like saying, I can't find deals. I can't find deals. My pushback is like, they're everywhere. Wholesalers are doing deals. They're making money. People are buying them. If they're paying a little bit more than you, that's okay. But if you're going to run the numbers, you're going to spend 30 minutes analyzing the property, building out your calculator, just send us a number. Like, it's not going to piss us off. We might say the same thing to you. Like, no way we're going to sell it to you for that. Like, I got people <laughs> that pay way more. But you're doing the same thing and then you're unsubscribing and things. You never know what's going to come across your desk. And I'm on every single person's list. And I don't badmouth anybody. And I do it for slightly different reasons. But I want to be on every wholesaler's list because you never know. That one property that's perfect for me, I want to see it. And I want to be on it. Well, it makes a lot of sense too, because what you've essentially just described is the whole idea of just don't self-select out of the, the game of business, right? It's the, look, if you want to play, then just play. And you might not make any movement after you submit your offer, but at least you're playing. It's kind of like the whole idea of like, should I, will, will I get into a top tier school, um, like a Harvard University? And it's like, well, you're definitely not going to get in if you don't apply, right? So it's the, it's the same sort of concept. It's you're definitely not going to get a deal done if you don't submit an offer. Uh, you just give me a new perspective with, uh, with dealing with wholesalers. So I appreciate it. I'm going to spend the rest of today signing up for all of the Raleigh, North Carolina wholesale list. If you're a Raleigh, North Carolina wholesale listening to this podcast, shoot me an email. <laughs> but don't don't be surprised when I send you bad offers. I'm just saying. Look, uh, I'm going to blame Bill. Gonna... <laughs> look, if you're, if you're a wholesaler who's listening to this, don't get pissed off at somebody who sends you an offer. Like, Just say thank you and, and let them know that it's not going to work out this time. But keep it going. I'll tell you what I like to do. 
is I like to tell them the offer that actually won a lot of times. Like this is, hey, you were really close or hey, keep submitting the offers. We love to get them. Uh, we'll find something for you eventually. Like we're working together. It's an ecosystem. Like we've got to work together in this business and we're out there hustling to find them deals. And I also want them to, to realize that we care. Like I realize you're doing 30 minutes of assessment, running numbers, things like that. If you send me an offer, at least I know you're a player. And next time you send me one, you've got some money, you're interested. So maybe the next time I see one, I'm like, hey, Brandon just offered on a property in that neighborhood. Let's reach out to him when you missed it and we went to spam or something like that. So it's a relationship business. We got to build relationships. It can't be just this person's never going to get a deal. So yeah, go sign up on all the ones that you unsubscribe from. That's great advice. That's great advice. But one more question on wholesaling. For people who are getting started today, I know you mentioned before that it's actually not a bad time to get started. Um, It's actually a pretty good time. What would be your advice for someone who wants to jump into the wholesaling business today, who maybe has no experience, but just wants to get involved? Yeah. So I think right now is a great time to start like kind of building that, like, why am I doing this? Why do I want to get in? I don't know if now is the best time to go send like 50,000 postcards or something like that, or spend all of your money on marketing for the next month or two. I really do think that now is probably the time to start building your knowledge base and starting to network, going to local meetups, RIAs, uh, go to events, listen to podcasts, things like that. You don't have to spend all day doing that, but then build out this kind of plan for yourself. Build out a six-month runway of a marketing plan of what you're going to do. So what I always ask people is, do you have money or don't you have money? And then do you have time or no time? And if you have no money and no time, you're really not going to get very far in this business, period. So in doing anything, as far as I'm concerned. And if anybody tells you differently than that, they're probably selling you something. So if you have money and you don't have time, then you can hire some people. You can build out some processes and things like that. If you have time and you don't have money, that's okay too. You're just going to have to go hustle. You're going to have to go knock on some doors. You're going to have to go network. You're going to have to go down to the local pawn shops and give them your business card or gun shops or wherever, the convenience store. Focus in one area and own that area. So the biggest recommendation I can give you if you're going to start marketing is a lot of people think they are going to market to the whole city and they're going to send just a couple of cards or a couple letters or do a small amount of marketing. And then what happens is they don't see any traction. So they go try something else and they go try something else. And every month, it's something different. You can never see any consistency in your marketing. You realize that this is a marketing and sales business. You'll realize that you have to have a marketing plan and a strategy going in. And in that six months, what's your budget? What's your runway? And then what does your strategy look like? And you stick to it. It took me four and a half months to get my first deal. And so most people quit after month one, two, three, something like that. I was $22,500 in to my marketing strategy, marketing plan. That was $30,000 plan, $22,500 in. Oh, and I had already spent $25,000 to join that mastermind I was talking about. So I was really like forty-seven five into this plan before I got my first $10,000 check. And you just have to stick with it. You have to go. And to jump back a little bit, if you can look at like one or two zip codes that are really hot, that are producing the most action and activity in your area as a wholesaler, that's where you want to start. Do one deal. Like just get from zero to one. Don't try to get to 10 deals. Don't try to get to five. Just do one deal and let that one deal kind of grow into two, into three, into five, into 10, and just let it organically grow. So I don't know. That's my biggest recommendation. Educate yourself a little bit, network, and then go out there and, and take some action and analyze what's happening. Great insights. And I think that uh, key takeaways that I, I got from this conversation was you got to focus, uh, you got to narrow down in where, where you're going. Uh, when you're in the wholesaling business, like you said, the two zip codes, focus on that and you have to be consistent because it's just going to take a while to get you there pretty much. So like I said, great advice. Uh, if our listeners wanted to learn more about you, what you had going on and perhaps join your mastermind group so they can get started in, in this type of business, how can they get in contact with you? 
Yeah, you can go to sevenfigureflipping.com. It's like the number seven figure flipping. And that's uh, that's the group. Uh, we do have an event coming up. I'd love for your listeners to jump in. It's a virtual event. It's called Flip Hacking Live. You can go to fliphackinglive.com and check it out. So we have like uh, probably have like a thousand investors there. It's three days and it's, um, it is uh, October 15th, 16th, and 17th. So I think it's like shortly after this would come out. So yeah, check us out. It's, uh, it's, I'd say any real estate investor will get a ton from it, not just flippers and wholesalers. That's where we focus. But about 80% of this year, we're trying to focus on like, what does the next year look like? So Brandon asked me to break out my crystal ball. The cool thing is I've asked every single speaker, asked the 24 speakers to tell me like, how are you preparing your personal finances and your business finances for the next year? And that's what I want them to show up. And we always like look back and beat on our chest about how many deals we've done and what the tactics and strategies are. But I feel like this year is a little bit different. We need to like get prepared for the opportunity that is, is coming and get Brandon's uh, money off the sidelines from two years into the next year. No, absolutely. Yeah, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It was uh, very educational. I learned a lot about the wholesaling business that I didn't really kind of... I, I always thought that flipping and wholesaling were really two parts of the same thing, but it, I, I kind of learned to it really is two separate businesses, at least from an operating perspective. So we're looking forward to putting this out there. And um, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Have fun. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.